Father in heaven, thank you for the great truth of the gospel, for the truth that Christ died for our sins, that he willingly gave himself and his own flesh for us, that he willingly poured out his own blood for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly were our sacrificial lamb. You, our Passover lamb, were sacrificed for us in our place for our sins. Thank you that it is only through your blood that we have this relationship with you, that we have this hope, that we have these promises that are yes and amen in you. Thank you for the good news that it's not by anything we can do or have done, not by any religious act that we have performed, but is only always and ever by your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, by your blood. And so we thank you for reminding us we forget these truths. We're sorry that we forget these important truths. And we thank you for reminding us of them. And we pray you'd help us believe them. And we pray that they would enable and fuel a life of love and obedience and worship to you. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. We thank you for giving us, the church, these ordinances. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us by them. Help us to see their true meaning and significance. Lord, we know that there are so many different interpretations and ways that Christians have practiced these ordinances. And so, Lord, we need a special measure of your illumination and your insight to understand and to apply your word. Help us not to come to the text with preconceived glasses on, but help us to allow your word to put the glasses on that we might see clearly. We need your help today and every day. We need your help in this moment and in every moment. And I pray that you would, by your spirit, by your power, give us grace in this moment and prepare us to partake of the Lord's Supper. Prepare us to proclaim your dying love. I pray that you would prepare us and help us in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We'll start with a couple of passages. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. Our normal practice is to just look at one passage and just be rooted in that one passage and look into that passage for all kinds of insight. But on this particular message... Because of the topic, we're going to be jumping around to a lot of various scriptures. And so I want us to start by reading a couple passages from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we know as the Great Commission. Listen to it again. And Jesus came and said to them, that is His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Turn over just a couple pages backwards to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and verse 26. 
Matthew says, now as they, speaking again of the disciples, were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, for our 22nd wedding anniversary yesterday, I gave my wife Gina an anniversary ring. An anniversary ring, much like a wedding ring, is a sign, a symbol of something greater than itself. See, a ring is just a ring. The ring I gave her is just a ring. Its worth is as much as the market says the gold and the diamonds are worth. But its significance is something far more important than just a ring. It signifies love and loyalty and friendship and commitment. It symbolizes, at least this particular ring, symbolizes what only 22 years of marriage could symbolize, could communicate. It symbolizes the promise to continue loving and serving into the future. Well, in much the same way that an anniversary ring signifies something greater than itself, so our Lord Jesus Christ gave His church some ongoing signs that point to something significant, that point to some massively significant realities. Now, in church, we often call these signs ordinances, which refers to specific outward visible practices that symbolize inward or invisible grace. Another similar word that some denominations use is the word sacrament. We prefer the word ordinance because it emphasizes the fact that these practices, as we've just read, were ordained by God. They were ordained by God. They're not just optional add-ons. They're not just something that the church throughout history has decided these would be good things to do. These are ordained by God. An ordinance is a physical sign, like a ring, that points to something more significant than itself. And we believe that the Lord Jesus has ordained two ongoing ordinances for His church. Believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Believer's baptism we saw in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Jesus says, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we saw in Matthew 26 that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. So as part of this series on why we gather as a church... I want to emphasize a simple yet profound truth about these two ordinances. Here it is. You and I cannot practice these ordinances by ourselves. Simple but profound truth. You and I, we cannot obey the Lord Jesus in what He has given us in the ordinances by ourselves. We can't do baptism and the Lord's Supper by ourselves apart from Jesus' church. 
When we ask the question, why we gather, we must talk about how these two ordinances are corporate in nature. See, these aren't practices we do when we're by ourselves in the privacy of our own home. We don't baptize ourselves or administer the Lord's Supper to ourselves. I would even argue, I know this is controversial, especially in this day and time, I would even argue you can't do these ordinances virtually. These ordinances were ordained for the gathered people of God. To practice them correctly, we must be together. We must gather. We must gather to obey the Lord Jesus by celebrating believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so with that just simple truth as the foundation, we can't do these by ourselves. We must gather to do these. I want to take some time to consider the significance of each of these two ordinances. We're going to talk about baptism first. I'm going to give you three truths about baptism We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. I'm going to give you three truths about the Lord's Supper. And then we will actually partake of the Lord's Supper together today as we do on the first Sunday of every month. Now, just a disclaimer before we jump into believer's baptism. I don't have time to flesh out the theology of these two ordinances. That's, what I, that's, what I, that's sort of what I, I'm bent to do. I want to just dive in and just make sure that we all have the same understanding and foundation. But that would take an entire sermon series on both of these ordinances. And so what I'm going to try to do and restrain myself to try to do is just a little bit of foundation, but mainly I want to talk about the corporate nature of these ordinances. I want to talk about what, it, what they mean for us as a body. So first, believer's baptism. I want to give you three truths about baptism. Number one, baptism portrays the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism portrays the gospel of Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Romans chapter 6. The book of Romans and chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Here's what Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So you see what Paul's arguing? He's arguing that a true Christian does not blatantly continue in sin just because God's grace is so abundant. In other words, a true Christian doesn't continually take God's grace for granted. And his argument for that, his argument for why that's true, is that we have died to sin. We have died to it. How can we live in it any longer? How can we just take God's grace for granted and just go on sinning without care? Because we've died to sin. And notice his illustration. His illustration is baptism. The word baptize means to plunge or immerse something under water. And so Paul says that when we were baptized, and notice he's assuming that the Christians in Rome have been baptized, 
They're believers after all. Believers get baptized, and so he's assuming they've been baptized. He says, when we were baptized, we were baptized into Jesus' death. We were buried with Jesus. And subsequently, just as Jesus rose from the dead, so in baptism we are raised to walk in a new life. So baptism symbolizes and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died for our sins and rose victoriously from the grave and our participation in that, our union with Christ in that death and burial and resurrection. If you want to understand what it means to be forgiven of your sin and cleansed from your sin and given a new life, baptism is that visual portrayal of this. Visible words. Words that you can see. Gospel that you can behold is what baptism is. This, by the way, is the reason we baptize by immersion in water rather than just sprinkling or pouring. Not only do we have the New Testament examples, I think, of baptism by immersion, but sprinkling just does not image the death and resurrection of Jesus like immersion does. And so that's why we baptize by immersion, to be that picture, to be that portrayal, to be that drama, if you will, of dying with Christ and being raised to new life. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says it this way, You were buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And so one of baptism's purposes is to physically symbolize what has happened to us spiritually. When we trust in Jesus, we are united to Him in His death and in His resurrection. His death became our death and His life our life. And in baptism, we portray that. In baptism, we proclaim that. So the reason the Lord Jesus gave His church the command to baptize is so that we can see and know the good news of His death and His resurrection. Baptism portrays the gospel of Jesus. Here's the second truth about baptism I want you to see. It's this. Only believers should be baptized. And all believers should desire to follow Jesus in baptism. Only believers should be baptized and all believers should desire to follow Jesus in baptism. So if baptism is a symbol, a sign of what's happened to a person spiritually, then it's only logical that only people who have been united to Jesus by faith are baptized. Right? This seems to me such a basic point, and yet it is not universally embraced by all Christians, even though I think Scripture is clear on this. In the Great Commission, which we read earlier, Matthew 28, Jesus commands His apostles to make disciples first and baptize second. It makes no sense to reverse that order. It makes no sense to say, go baptize everybody you can and make disciples of them after you baptize them. No, it's make disciples of them, baptize them, and teach them all that I have commanded you 
to do. Consider just a few examples from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. We're actually going to turn to Acts 2 in just a moment if you want to be turning there. But just here, let me quote a portion of this verse. Those who received the message were baptized. So receiving the message, did it happen before or after they were baptized? Were they baptized and then received the message? No, it says they received the message and they were baptized. Consider Acts chapter 8, verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and about Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. So faith came before baptism, right? When they believed Philip, so he preached the good news, then they were baptized. So in these passages, and there are many others like them, those being baptized give an outward indication of faith in Christ before baptism. Only those who personally profess faith in Christ are baptized. The Scripture never indicates that anyone is baptized before they trust in Jesus. Thus, the Bible does not teach that infants should be baptized. Infants cannot repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. And so they should not be baptized. I'm fully aware, I have Presbyterian friends, I've discussed this, debated I'm fully aware that there's this entire understanding of baptism that, that's not in corresponding with what I'm saying here, but I'm just trying to read the Scripture and understand it. That's all I'm trying to do. They believed and they were baptized. Make disciples and then baptize them. It seems as if the Scripture teaches to me that faith is before baptism. Not the other way around. We understand the Bible to teach that baptism is appropriately administered only to those who make a believable profession of faith in Jesus Christ. As one scholar has said, baptism is not something to which a person is brought, but to which he gladly comes. In other words... A born-again believer in Jesus has a desire to publicly proclaim their faith in Jesus, not simply to be forced against their will to have a few drops of water placed on their head. Or even worse than that, to be coerced into being baptized, which many Baptist churches are guilty of doing. Only believers should be baptized. And all believers should desire to follow Jesus in this way. Now, the third point, the one that I'm trying to get to as quickly as possible. Baptism is for the gathered church, not just for the one being baptized. Baptism is for the gathered church, not just for the individual being immersed into water. Yes, baptism is for the individual being baptized. It is a specific and introductory act of obedience to Jesus. It is a means of grace to the person being baptized. It solidifies their faith as they publicly declare it to others. But have you ever thought about how the whole church benefits and participates in the ordinance of baptism? There are two specific passages in the Bible that come to mind that show us, I think, that baptism is supposed to be connected to the gathered church and not just some private ceremony. The first passage I'm thinking of is the Great Commission itself. So when Jesus gave the Great Commission, which includes baptism, 
He didn't give it to individual Christians. He gave it to his apostles. He gave it to his disciples, who are later called the foundation of the church. The apostles are the foundation of the church. And Jesus gave this command to baptize to men who would be instrumental in planting and establishing and leading the churches throughout the known world. It is to a particular group of people that Jesus gives this command to baptize. It is, it is to His church leaders. This shows us that baptism was intended to be an ongoing church practice. As people turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus, they were to be baptized and they were to be taught to obey and follow Jesus. How would they be taught everything that Jesus commanded them, which is in the Great Commission, if they're not gathered into local churches? Have you thought about that? What does that mean to teach them all the things that I have commanded you? Can you do that in a one-on-one -on -one sit down over coffee? Like, can you even do that over a couple of years? No, that's a lifelong commitment. Make disciples, baptize them, and then spend your rest of your life discipling them in the things I've taught them. That implies the church. That implies that we do that together. The second passage that comes to my mind is Acts 2. And so go ahead and turn there if you haven't already turned to Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. We're going to start reading in verse 37. Acts 2, 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received His word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And my question is, added to what? Well, somebody could say, well, added to the kingdom of God, right? Added to the, the number of the redeemed. And that is a correct answer. Yes, they were added that day to the kingdom of God. But I think the text gives us a more specific answer than that. What were they added to? Well, the very next verse begins describing what we know is the early church. When people believed Jesus and were baptized, they were added immediately to the church. They were part of the gathered people of God. These new believers didn't exist as individual Christians on their own. They were baptized, here's a phrase, into the church. They were baptized into the church. Their baptism was the way that they declared publicly to all who could see that they believe in Jesus and that they are members of the body of Christ. This is why I'm saying baptism is for the whole church. So how should the ordinance of baptism benefit the whole church? Well, I don't have a definitive list, but here are a few thoughts 
to sort of get to an answer to that question. When we baptize someone, it is the whole church who is doing the baptizing. You see, these, these doors right here open. That's where our baptistry is. If you haven't seen it yet, these open. And I, I might be standing there in the water with the person being baptized. It might be Pastor Landon or another one of the, the other pastors standing there actually doing the baptism with our hands, with our lips. But the reality is we're only in there as a representative of the entire church. We're in there as a representative of all of us doing the baptizing, performing the baptism. Also, because baptism is supposed to be a vivid picture of the gospel and what's happened to us spiritually, we get to behold the gospel with each and every baptism that we witness. We get to see it. The gospel is freshly and vividly displayed in front of our eyes. And thus, we have a a new opportunity every time we see someone baptized. We have a new opportunity to repent of our sins and to trust in Jesus as we observe a believer being baptized. This means, friends, that we are freshly reminded of the promises of God to us. Participating in a baptism is a means of God's grace to our soul to encourage our downcast soul, to remind our distracted hearts, and to rebuke our unbelief. Friends, one catechism encourages people to, quote, improve your baptism. Regularly improve your baptism. And by that, I don't think they mean that we need to be rebaptized in a better way. But rather, what they meant is that we should rehearse the gospel as we watch, by faith, others being baptized. Like every time we participate in the ordinance of baptism, we are improving our own baptism in the faith because we understand what it means better today than we did when we were baptized. We remember the the little faith that we had and how God has matured us and how God has grown us and how He has helped us to understand the gospel and live it out even deeper. And so just real practically, friends, let me encourage you to make it a priority to be here at church when someone is being baptized. We always try to announce that beforehand, that we're having a baptism so that we can prepare to benefit from it. It's not just an add-on to the service that we just kind of have to get through so we can get to the other stuff. No, it is, it is something we're all to participate in and look forward to and utilize as God's means of grace to remind us of the gospel. And friends, practically, whenever we do have a baptism, repent and believe the gospel again along with the person declaring their faith publicly. We are to declare our faith as we repent and as we believe again. Remember how the Lord has saved you. Remember your own public declaration of your faith in Jesus as you see someone else being baptized. Now, before we move on to talk about the Lord's Supper, let me just acknowledge that we've not had a baptism here at Miller Heights Baptist Church in about a year if my memory serves me correctly. Some of you may have come, been members here for an entire year, and you haven't yet seen us do a baptism. We are aware of that. It's something we wish was not the case, but it's something that we can't directly control by what we do. We believe this is in the hands of God. Other than the fact that we're to keep praying and keep telling people about Jesus in hopes that they will 
want to obey Jesus in baptism. And one of my prayers has been, as I've been studying this this week and preparing to preach this, one of my prayers has been that this discussion of baptism would be used of God in all of us to fuel in us a desire to benefit from this ordinance in such a way that we are eager to see people come to faith in Jesus. I pray that that would would fuel big prayers for the unbelievers in our life. Who knows, the person you share the gospel with this week may be baptized six months from now, a year from now, as God saves them and brings them into the family of God. And so let's be eager to share the gospel in hopes that we will get to benefit from the ordinance of baptism very soon. Well, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. We've seen believers' baptism. The second ordinance is the Lord's Supper. And we talk about this in preparation now for actually partaking together today. So while baptism is a sign of a believer's entry into a new covenant family of God, the Lord's Supper is the continual family meal. Baptism is that entrance into the family, and the Lord's Supper is that continual gathering at the family table. So let me highlight the same three truths about the Lord's Supper. Number one, the Lord's Supper portrays the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper portrays the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night before He was crucified. He gathered His disciples in a room and He gave them a tangible, visible picture of what was about to happen to Him. His body was about to be broken and His blood was about to be poured out on the cross. And Jesus commanded His disciples to continue to observe this supper until He comes. Until He is able to, with us, partake of this supper again. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11 is the most specific, most extensive teaching on the Lord's Supper in the Bible. This is a fairly lengthy passage, but I want to go ahead and read it in its entirety because I'm going to make some comments from it. Paul says, But in the following instructions... I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another, goes, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord Jesus, from the Lord, what I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. So Paul says the bread represents the body of Jesus that was torn and broken for our sins. And the cup represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out for our sins. And then in verse 26, Paul gives what I think is the central meaning of the Lord's Supper. Notice what Paul says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, here's what you're doing. You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The death of Jesus Christ was so significant, so meaningful, so central to the plan and purposes of God that He gave us this visual and regular reminder of it. Every time we partake of these elements, we are drawn to remember the Gospel, to remember the finished work of Christ for us. We are to freshly appropriate the work of Christ for us by faith. We are to take the bread and take the cup just as we take Christ to be our perfect sacrifice. So when we hold the bread in our fingers, we ought to think about the suffering that Christ endured for us. We should recall the scourge that was used to rip the skin from His back. We should recall the crown of thorns that mocked His Lordship. We should feel the nails that fashioned Him to the splintery wood. We should picture the spear being pierced into His side. And we should remember and remind ourselves again, His body was broken for me. And when we hold the cup in our hands, we should think upon the fact that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We should see Jesus as our sacrificial, unblemished lamb being led through the slaughter. We should thank God for the new covenant in Jesus' blood that gives us the ability to truly know God and to live for Him fully. The cup reminds us that He poured out His own blood for the forgiveness of the sins of many. So this is the central meaning of the Lord's Supper As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. Above all, the Lord's Supper should cause us to freshly remember and embrace the death of Jesus for our sins. It is a portrayal of the Gospel. How kind of God to give us two ordinances that both serve to portray the truth of the Gospel so that we would be reminded and spurred on to believe it and live in light of it. Here's the second truth 
about the Lord's Supper. Only believers should partake of the Lord's Supper. And all believers should desire to proclaim the Lord's death. Only believers should partake of the Lord's Supper. And all believers should desire to proclaim the Lord's death. So if this is what the Lord's Supper proclaims, it's only logical that only true believers should participate in the Lord's Supper. Those who are not trusting in Jesus should not partake of the Lord's Supper. In fact, Paul has a strong warning here in verse 27 that we should not partake in an unworthy manner. And so only those who are actually trusting in Jesus and who are willing to follow Him and obey Him should participate. And so let me say it as clearly as possible. In preparation for our partaking in just a few minutes, if you are not trusting in Jesus and His sacrifice for your sins, please do not partake of the bread and of the cup. For your own soul's sake, do not participate. This ordinance is not for you. But we hope that God will use it to convict you of your need to trust in Jesus alone. Parents, you have a responsibility to teach and shepherd your children in this. Listen, it's ultimately up to you, parents, as to whether you allow your children to partake. My personal practice in my family and my personal counsel to you, parents, would be to have your children wait until they are baptized. That is, publicly proclaim their faith in Jesus before they partake of the Lord's Supper. To me, that's the clearest way to make sure that they're willing to follow Jesus and that they understand what it is that they are doing. But parents, ultimately it's your job to teach them and guide them in these significant matters. There's no judgment here. There's grace here for how we do it. I'm just giving you counsel and wisdom from my experience. So only believers should partake and, only, and all believers should desire to be present when their church family gathers around this table to proclaim the Lord's death. Only believers and all believers should want to participate in this. <coughs> well, now let's look at the third and final truth about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for the gathered church, not just for our individual devotion. The Lord's Supper is for the gathered church, not just for our individual devotion. <laughs> The Lord's Supper is not something that's just to have a special me and Jesus moment. It was given by Jesus to His church and is only correctly celebrated when God's people are gathered together in harmony and in unity. In 1 Corinthians 11, notice the emphasis on gathering. In verse 17, Paul says, when you come together... In verse 18, he uses that same phrase, when you come together, and he actually points out that there are divisions in the church. In verse 20, Paul again says, when you come together. And in verses 33 and 34, he uses that phrase again twice. When you come together. When you come together. So whatever the Lord's Supper is, it is corporate, not individual. 
In fact, verse 20 points to the fact that someone could think they are partaking of the Lord's Supper and it not actually be the Lord's Supper at all. If we partake with divisions and selfishness, we aren't partaking of the Lord's Supper at all. In fact, that's what the phrase in verse 29 means. When Paul tells us to discern or recognize the body, in this context, I think that means living out the unity and the love that we're to have in the body of Christ. You can't proclaim the death of Jesus if you're at the same time putting yourself above others for whom Christ died, like the Corinthians were doing. And so Paul says in verse 33, we're to wait for one another so that when we come together, it's not for judgment. The command to wait for one another, I think, implies that the Lord's Supper is not for an individual me and Jesus moment. It's for when we're together. The Lord's Supper is about the entire church coming together in unity and love to delight in and to proclaim the beauty of Jesus' death for our sins. We proclaim His death in the context of our love for one another, in the context of the community of faith. And so the right practice of the Lord's Supper is one of the things that makes a church a church. It enhances our unity and it centers us on Jesus. Because of how the Lord's Supper is designed to be for the gathering of the whole church, my personal opinion, again, we're going into the realm of personal opinion and advice, my personal opinion is that I don't think the Lord's Supper should be celebrated in any other group other than a church. I don't think a college ministry or a mission team or an individual family should partake of the Lord's Supper because it's disconnected from the entire gathering of God's people. The Lord's Supper is the meal where the whole family sits down together in unity with care and love and concern for one another. And I think to do it in any other way that's individualized or private or selfish is to do it other than to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's to do something other than proclaim His death. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we specifically remember that belonging to Jesus means belonging to each other. Belonging to Jesus necessarily means we belong to each other, to all the other family members of the family of Jesus. Though many... We are one in Jesus and we proclaim His death together. So one very practical thing that we can apply right now is every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're not to think of this just sort of walls around us, just me and God communing here, but rather it's, it's me and God and me and everybody else here. It's us together. Yes, God, we're communing with Him. Yes, we're receiving His grace as we remember the death of Christ and as we put our faith in Jesus, but we're doing that together. We're doing that with each other. That's supposed to encourage us that we're not alone in this. So unfortunately, we're not able to improve our baptism this morning, but after we spend some time in reflection and self-examination, we do have the great blessing this morning of proclaiming the death of Jesus together through the Lord's Supper. And so the music team's going to go ahead and come. They're going to lead us in a song of reflection. And then I'm going to come back up and lead us in partaking of the Lord's Supper.